Hello and welcome to Better at Work, the podcast that will inspire you to achieve betterness in your working life. Discover how to navigate the pitfalls, challenges and work jerkery that may be getting in your way. Learn how simple changes, being authentic and even using humor can be game-changing. I'm your host, Carl Quinlan. I've spent 20 years helping people and global organizations to be better. And now I'm here to share my practical tips and real-life stories with you, as well as insights from my conversations with some incredible people. So join me as we explore how we can all be better at work. Because when work is better, life is better. Hello and welcome to Better at Work. On this episode, I am really happy to say we are joined by Professor Ian Robertson. Now, Ian is a clinical psychologist and neuroscientist. And what I love about Ian is he's able to turn the science and research to really address real world problems. He is the co-director of the Global Brain Health Institute, and he is professor of psychology at Trinity College Dublin. Now, he is widely recognized as one of the world's leading neuroscientists. He's written five books and he has a brand new one, which I absolutely love. I did it on Audible. It was great. All about confidence, the new science of self-belief, why some people learn it and others don't. Now, Ian is coming to us live today from Dublin. Ian, welcome to Better at Work. Hello, Cal. We kick off every conversation with, where did this all start for you? How did you become so interested in this area, maybe human behavior or confidence in particular? What happened in your youth? Where did this happen that you had this desire to get involved in understanding confidence more and helping people? Actually, my understanding of confidence really comes from my wife, Dr. Fiona Doherty, who's a brilliant clinical psychologist. And when I met her first, throughout my life, she kind of almost brainwashed me. She said, look, if you can give a child confidence, almost nothing else matters once they have confidence. You know, I kind of accepted that, but I didn't really understand it until suddenly she, she said, you should write a book about it. And, and, and I started looking at the science of this and, and was blown away by it. In my own history, I was brought up as a working class boy in Glasgow Council House, very aware of not being confident. Maybe academically I was confident, but in most other ways I wasn't. And there was definitely something about the social class, the socioeconomic status that eats into your ability to do things. And that's what certain private education does for people. Yes, if you're lucky, it has good kind of academic credentials, but essentially what it does is it gives you a self-belief. So when I wrote the book and researched the book, it took me two years to kind of just even get the proposal together. I ended up just astonished at the power and importance of confidence in the world. I love that. And I heard you say something about that on another podcast. It, it really resonated with me because I grew up in Ireland, pretty nice background, but I had no confidence. And it was actually, I got confidence through working at an investment bank and being around people that were like, oh, but you're really good at this. And it's interesting how certain institutions can help you improve your confidence. That's right. I mean, it, it's there's a number of sources of confidence, and we'll obviously go into this a lot, but successfully achieving stuff. Successes. One of my previous books was called The Winner Effect, and that was about how success is the biggest predictor of success. And we know how that works in the brain. It's called The Winner Effect. And actually, success, that leads into confidence very much. But the other thing, of course, is the esteem of other people. And that's why social status and socioeconomic status gives people such a huge advantage in life. Because if you like, they get this infusion of self-belief simply by virtue of their status. What is confidence? Is it optimism? Is it self-esteem? You know, how do you describe confidence? It's not optimism. Optimism is the belief that things are going to turn out okay. It's not self-esteem. Self-esteem is your evaluation of yourself. And actually, self-esteem can cripple organizations and cripple people in their attempts to pr protect it. Confidence, its secret sauce is it's linked to action. It's in the brain, it's, associated, it's, it's linked to the action systems of the brain. And it's your belief that you can do something. It also is your belief that if you do that thing, then the outcome will happen. And that gives you four states of the mind. Can't do, can't happen, which is apathy. Can do, can't happen, which leads to anger. Can't do, can happen, which leads to anxiety and, and low mood. And then the full whammy is can do, can happen, which has incredible effects in the brain 
that actually acts as a self-fulfilling prophecy. Love them. And if you're in that final box, can do, can happen, well, the world is your oyster. The top right one, if you visualize the box, the can do, can't happen. That's a big factor in uh, a lot of the political anger in the world today. It was also a feature of, say, the Arab Spring, where you suddenly had people, young, particularly young people, who suddenly believed that they could create a situation where they they could improve their lives. But very rapidly and tragically, they found there was this sense of can do, but then it couldn't happen. And that leads to terrible frustration and anger. And of course, anger as an emotion has the same physiology as anxiety. Mm. And so anger and anxiety become blended into each other when you're experiencing one emotion that triggers the other and vice versa. It's a very, and that's part of the Western world's unhappiness we have at the moment. I saw that you said you call confidence a bridge to the future yeah. at the core of what makes things happen. And as you said, by combining can do about the inner world, which can happen about the external yeah. world. I was thinking about this because, you know, in some ways that bridge can lead to <laughs> bad places as well. And, I, you know, you mentioned WeWorks. I was yeah. thinking about Elizabeth Holmes. I don't know why I was thinking about her. She hasn't gone to prison yet, but that whole, and she's unusual because, you know, in the book you talk about females, different, but this bridge to the future and the can happen and the can do, it can lead to bad places too, right? As, as you mentioned. It's like nuclear energy. Nuclear energy can solve the climate crisis or it can incinerate us. Anything that's powerful can be powerfully good or powerfully bad. Everything powerful is potentially a two-edged sword, and that's true of confidence as well. And Elizabeth Holmes is just a great example of someone who had this ironclad belief that she could produce this product that would blow apart kind of medical diagnosis. And I'm sure she believed it for a while, but that's self-belief and confidence started to defy reality. Mm. But the, here's the challenge with confidence is confidence buys you status. And if you behave confidently, you will impress and, and create a status for yourself that becomes self-fulfilling. Then other things you say will be believed. Yeah. People won't test them in the same way. And so she had such a prestigious board of you know famous, famous people who all believed and infected by this overconfidence. Normally, this is a feature more of male behavior than female behavior. Normally women, and but there are many exceptions, normally women are more realistic in their appraisal of their own abilities. On average, men tend to overestimate their own abilities. And there are many apocryphal stories about this. Yeah, the confidence thing, it's interesting, you know, in the workplace, I have seen it a lot where I'm not very good at talking about a topic that maybe I haven't researched or if I don't know the answer just yet. But I have worked with some people and honestly, they come in and they talk about something and I'm like, I smell a rat here. This is not true, but you are really selling this. And it's it's interesting. Some people are better at it than others. I'm certainly not very good at it myself. I think it's the Catholic Irish guilt. I'd be like, oh, something's going to go wrong here. I'm going to get caught out. The technical term for that is spoofing. <laughs> and there are many, the world is full of spoofers. Oh, jeez. Now, it's very hard to spoof in some domains. If you're a mathematician, you can't spoof. You you, you will be found out generally. But generally, there's so many domains of behavior, including supposedly very scientific areas like economics, where actually you get kind of prestigious economic economists on and just confidently asserting this. And this happened for Brexit in Britain. There, there was a prom, there was only really one economist who was arguing that there was going to be economic paradise coming as a result of this against all the others. But this, this person had such self-confidence, overconfidence. It was baseless and influenced an entire political or, or a wing of an entire political party to come with some disastrous um, uh, results for, for, for the UK, for example. Overconfidence is a primitive dominance signal that inhibits other people and maybe quashes them and other people creates charisma. People admire you and you yes. get status as a result of that. But it's a bit of a steamroller. Absolutely. And it's a dangerous steamroller. That's where the two-edged sword comes in. Marissa Mayer, the first woman CEO of a major tech company, Yahoo, she said this about success, but it's also true about confidence. Success is about doing things before you feel quite ready. That's where this idea of the bridge to the future comes in. What's critical about distinguishing humans from all other species is their ability to imagine 
a not yet existing state of the world and to work towards creating it. Now, for instance, today we're faced with the incredible opportunities and credible challenges of artificial intelligence. And the, the, there's a few key people, including Jeffrey Hinton, who resigned and warned against it. He was the god, the grandfather of, of, of AI. In fact, he was a colleague of mine in Cambridge, the applied psychology unit there just before I, I went there. But he had the, the vision to create an intelligent machine, which was the vision for many people. But it was, it was deemed, when I was there, it was deemed really unrealistic and not possible. But because people had that vision, they worked towards it. And my goodness, they have done it. We're on a roller coaster now, the, the human species, because of that. So that's an example of what humans can do. But in most of our domains, few of us can make that kind of impact on the world. Most of us can do is imagine a state of the world that's slight, somewhat beyond our current capacities. And then bridge that uncertainty because this is about the future is always uncertain. So it's about bridging that uncertainty or in Marissa Mayer's words, doing things before you feel quite ready, but nevertheless being motivated towards achieving it. The fuel for getting you across that bridge is confidence. There's so much you said there, Ian, that uh, resonates with me. And from the book as well, I picked up so much of this. You talk there about imagination, and that's the difference uh, that humans have. And in the book, you said imagination is the chief operating officer of confidence. I loved that. It's so true. This whole can do. And, you know, I suppose sometimes I'm actually quite a confident person in certain situations, not. And I, I agreed with your whole piece about imagining a future. And then what's the next step you can do to just get there? You know, sometimes I think sometimes I found in corporate world, people would have, they'd imagine something, but they didn't know, oh, it's a three-year project. I just don't know how, where would we even start? I used to hear that and I go, well, what's the first move we could do? Could we actually get some stakeholders together? Could we build up a bit of momentum here? And that's where I love your whole can do. And sometimes it is about what's the next action I can do to move this along? The next action is critical. Yeah. That's one of the critical ingredients is because so many people get defeated by a fantasy future. There's two risks there. One risk is to say, ah, I could never do that and not even start. The other risk is to fantasize yes. that you're there already and become a Walter Mitty <laughs> and you never, your brain treats the fantasy as if you've achieved it. You get the little buzz of the brain's reward network activity for the imagined success. I imagine myself being slim and handsome and being running a marathon in two hours. And you can have these fantasies. And some people, probably a minority of people, become kind of Walter Mitty's. They live in that fantasy land. They are actually less likely to achieve what it is they fantasize about than people who don't fantasize. Nevertheless, that imagination, that kind of what-if thinking, if then it is harnessed to action thinking, actually is incredibly energizing. You can have the fantasy, well, imagine if I could run in the Olympics or sing on the La Scala stage. You're not going to do it probably, and you don't want to, to buy into imagining you've done it, but it can energize you towards taking some intermediate small goal that in Marissa Mayer's words, you don't feel quite ready for, but it stretches you a little bit. I do love that you did a lot in the book around the difference between men and women. Are men likely to act or feel confident? Does it start young for boys? Why do men always seem confident or not always, but majority over women? One reason for this is society's preference and selective reinforcing of males. And even depending on the culture, even some mothers will do this. They will prefer their sons. Any daughter will tell you, tell you this is a very common thing. So that's a huge cultural and family influence on confidence. Secondly, there's the social, the norms, the social norms about what girls versus boys can do. I mean, I, I was absolutely astonished when I, I was planning to write a small chapter in my book on sex differences. And I was then so humbled by the incredible burden and, and handicap under which women on average in, in the world are under that I ended up to almost the biggest part of the book, two big, big chapters. I could go into this in great detail. Another way, one of uh, just examples here, another way in which women find it more harder to be overconfident is that confidence, is, as I said, is very much about your dominance and your relationships with other people. For women, it's being dominant, obviously dominant, is much more tricky 
business than it is for a man. Part of the reason for that is, in women's minds and brains, their self-representation, how they think about themselves in their brains, is much more embedded in their relationships. Now, this is particular. I'm talking particularly about Western countries here. Highly collectivist countries like Japan's a bit different, but I'm not going to go into that just now. But in in individualistic countries, women how they see themselves is much more bound up to the relationships. For boys and men, it's a much more individual representation. So therefore, when a, a boy competes with other boys, there are no in, well, there are a few internal obstacles. You know, it's easier for that boy to dominate or to, to compete. For a woman or a girl, she's competing against herself to some extent because of her, her own self being nested in, in, in relationships. And then there's another thing which has to do with how human beings perceive competence. And in our cultures, within a second of seeing a face, people can make a judgment of competence. Wow. And that's why six-year-old, seven-year-old children can predict with 70% accuracy the outcome of elections, having only seen the faces for one second and never having heard. And what they do is they make a judgment of competence, and that judgment of competence is hugely tied up with the masculinity, perceived masculinity of the face. So that's just some of the many, many Burton. So if a woman behaves in the way a man does, and any woman listening to this will know this to be the case, the man can say it like it is in the meeting, can, you know, and he'll be seen as assertive yep. and, oh, you know, isn't he right? The woman does that. Oh, isn't she aggressive? Oh, she's pretty. The women are, are walking in eggshells. Ian, I have heard that so many times from, I've got a lot of female listeners and actually a lot of female friends from my years in corporate jobs. And the amount of women that would have said that to me going, you know, if I, if I said what he said in that meeting, you know, I would be lambasted. I absolutely see that myself in corporate jobs. You touched on the individualistic piece because that was the question I had around it, you know, uh, because women and girls across the globe are less inclined to be individualistic in their thinking. And I've definitely seen it in the workplace as well. The other thing that I heard you recently talk about, which I think is an important one in relation to women and teenage girls, is the social media, the impact it's having, particularly around comparison. And, you know, I know that you are a big fan of the female lead, which I am too. But this, I think, is quite a tough area because I've actually had a few friends who've had challenges for their teenage daughters, which none of my friends who have teenage boys have had. Now, it might be just coincidence, but this whole comparison. Tell us a bit more, because I know you're a passionate advocate for this as well. There is a real crisis in the Western world for teenage girls. And social media seems a reasonable hypothesis. This is playing a big part in it. And if, if you go back to how girls are, in their self-perception is, is grounded in their relationships, but suddenly the relationships are now global through social media. And so it is almost impossible not to feel wanting in whatever dimension, not to feel like a failure in your looks or your performance or your sociability or your attractiveness. So this constant comparison, I mean, it is ghastly because it generates anxiety, which generates cortisol, which is, you know, the stress hormone, which if you're having a lot of that a lot of the time, it's not good for you physically or, or, or it's not good for your brain. Boys, of course, are somewhat protected to the extent that they're kind of selfish loners. <laughs> I know this is, that's, that's a caricature. That's a caricature. But, you know, they're less, less yes, vulnerable I know, I know. To, to that. There, there is a trend towards boys being more concerned about their looks and their bodies and everything like that. But it's not nearly as much. They're not nearly as objectified as girls are. So there's not this constant feeling of, oh, I'm not good looking enough. I'm not smartly dressed enough. I'm not popular enough. And there's so many dimensions in which now in a globalized world, it's possible to feel like a failure. Absolutely. And it's it's a ghastly, ghastly side effect of unregulated social media. I loved you spoke about this on with the female lead on, on one of their YouTubes. And I thought it was what you said really resonated with me. You said we need to gain control of our attention. And yes. I thought yes. that was such a relevant point. And that's where I think if young women can follow things like on Instagram, the female lead, etc., so that what comes through their feed is not 
these unrealistic comparisons. When you asked me earlier on how to get from the fantasy future to the, you know, the imagined future to, you know, and, and I said, well, action is the first thing, but of a number of other things, attention is up there with action. Because how you feel, your emotional state, your motivational state depends almost entirely on what you attend to. Your attention is what is in the marketplace these days. Your attention, Google makes its profits, for instance, and many other companies off your attention. It's a commodity. It's a, it's a global commodity. And therefore, there's a global corporate struggle to control your attention. And that has these terrible side effects, you know, of, of you know, the mental health crisis in girls, for example. You have to then become, children have to learn, we all have to learn to control our attention and not be controlled by this damn phone in my desk here. And I scroll on Twitter far too much. We all do. <laughs> you know, and it depletes you. Yes. Because you're, 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 being, you're being controlled by these things. You're not giving yourself space. But fortunately, there are, I mean, that's why the, the mindfulness movement is a, is a brilliant viral movement. I wish many, I wish everyone would do some version of it because that's about the control of attention, about separating yourself from the influences that might be dragging you down or lifting you up, even the highs and the lows and creating a little bit of detachment and maintaining that kind of attentional poise, which gives you a certain protection against the carnivores. <laughs> of attention. Absolutely, absolutely. Look, and I, I think for any of our listeners, you've got to follow the female lead. And exactly as Ian was saying there, really focus on those drains of your attention, if you like. And Ian, within the book, what I loved is that confidence can be learned. And you, you've shared a few of them already with us here. Control what you pay attention to. I also loved one that you said was around setting immediate goals, not the end goal, which we touched a little bit on there. I know you're a big fan of Rumi and he says the road only appears with the first step, which we didn't touch yes. on. But I think that that's linked to what we said earlier, right? You've got to have that first move. Absolutely. I have a number of A's of attention. Action's one, attention's another, but anxiety is a third. And anxiety is the greatest corrosive of confidence. And confidence is the greatest antidote to anxiety. And one of the problem with anxiety is it's a mindset of where you're anticipating threats, yes. anticipating punishment. And that biases your brain systematically in a way that its attention is going to selectively attend to further evidence of threat. Yeah. It's going to scan the horizon for threat. So supposing you're having to do a presentation to a group of people, if you're in the threat mindset, your eyes will automatically alight on the person who's frowning or texting or looking bored selectively look for further evidence and that will drag you down further and make you more anxious. Your memory system is biased as well. Your memory throws up examples of past failures, not of past successes. Anxious threat mindset makes people withdraw and avoid. Cancel, oh, I'm not going out tonight, I've got a headache. You know, I'm not going to go for that interview, I might not get it. Throughout the world, and there's been big cross-national studies done of this, anxious people do less of everything because of their avoidance mindset. And of course, that then cuts you off from Rumi's path. Yes. Because you have to take that action, to take that step forward, even though you don't know precisely where you're going or if you can go there. But the fact that you've stepped forward immediately gives you a slightly different perspective in the world, but also you get that internal surge of a little bit of surge of achievement of even having taken that step that, that's maybe stretched you a little bit. You talked about that as well, about how someone might be even anxious if they've been in the house for a week and they've been unwell. And, you know, the first step might be, well, I'm just going to walk down to the end of the road today. And it's just getting that done. I've suffered from anxiety myself in the past, particularly if it's when I work for certain types of people who are maybe more micromanagers, I get quite anxious. And everything you said there resonated with me. It does impact my confidence. I'm looking for signals that align with my threats or feeling like, okay, I'm going to get called out here for something. It's an awful place to be because I used to say, I felt like, you know, when a car is revved up, it's revving and you kind of go, it's, it's, it's yeah. not really ticking over correctly. It's a bit too high revved. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. the feeling I've had when I felt anxious. Yeah. No, that's a great example. That's where attention it's feeling you're in control of your own internal world. Yes. It's almost a prerequisite for feeling a sense of confidence about doing stuff in the external world. Why? Because how can I 
say, I think I can do that. If you cannot predict what your emotional state will be, you cannot predict whether a big burst of anxiety is going to sweep over you. It's controlling your anxiety and feeling in control of your own mind, which means being in control of your own attention, is a prerequisite of feeling, harnessing the, the real power of confidence, which is to let you take that step forward. I love that. And in the book, for the listeners, is so much great stuff that Ian goes through. The relationship between confidence, physical strength and pain. And I love that whole section. You know, we won't get time to go through that, but it's kind of building on what you were just talking about there. Now, we're coming towards the end of our time together, and it's just been so great to have you on, Ian. Got a few final questions. We are in this world at the moment. We touched on AI and redundancies and it's just so much happening that it's quite hard for some people to be confident if they're thinking about getting a new job. They're like, oh, I don't think I should leave my job. I mean, am I going to go somewhere else? I'm going to be made redundant. What confidence would advice would you give people? I, I know everything is about risk assessment in a way. It's like, okay, what advice would you give people in this kind of crazy world they're in right now who may want to do something different but are feeling nervous? It's a great question. And, and IBM announced there were AI was going to get rid of an entire tier yes. of positions that they're just not going to recruit into. And that's going to happen. I mean, Bloomberg, I think, estimated, maybe even Goldman Sachs, I'm not sure, there would be 300 million yes. jobs lost worldwide. Now, there will be other jobs created. This is a churn of change that we have never, ever seen before in the world. We are going to need confidence like nothing else. It's going to be the resource. Even our intellects have become devalued by AI. Absolutely. So what we have is our attention, our consciousness, our ability to relate to other people and our ability to inhabit awareness as a privileged human being, to be fully aware and, and enjoy this miracle of being alive and conscious, which it is. Absolutely. It is. So what we have to do is, nevertheless, we have to make a living. We have to do the kind of rational calculations. Well, here's my potential route that I want to take that's different. Here are the costs, the risks. What are the percentages? How much do I hate what I'm doing just yeah. now? <laughs> how much, how much would I like? A great kind of thing to do is decatastrophizing. What is the worst thing that could happen? Okay. Supposing all my risks panned out in the very worst way, what would I do? And so now sometimes that's not something you would prepare to consider, but sometimes you say, well, actually, you know what? Maybe I could work as a barman. You know, I'd find something to do if you can. Take control of that and just say, okay, well, put away the, the worst possible situation. But then you're, you're still left with the pros and cons of two different courses of action. What I have to say is confidence is about bridging uncertainty and it's about pricing in uncertainty. So you price in uncertainty. Say, look, I'm making this decision to do X and the full awareness there's a 20% or 10% or unknowable percentage risk that this will be the wrong decision that will lead to a bad outcome. I have, however, I can live with the worst outcome here. Okay. Now, what I have to do is control my attention. I have to say, right, obviously, I'm going to wake up some mornings at 4am and thinking, oh my God, am I really going to do that? What you have to do is learn a habit of giving yourself a worry box and say, that's my Tuesday morning worry box. I'm not even going to think about this decision. I have made the decision. I've priced it in. I'm, I've decided to go in this way. I'm going to love my decision. I'm going to be confident in my ability to deliver this, even though I don't feel quite ready or nothing is certain. I will obviously have to periodically review this decision because the, the world is changing so fast. That's Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock. I was in a vice presidential job in, in a university years ago, which I didn't enjoy very much. And I had so many things to potentially to worry about. But I learned that have mental habit of I put in a worry box or, or a thinking about box for next week or Friday for whatever it was. And I put in my diary. And having done that, taking that action gives you that little externalizing a mental process. Some people can do that automatically. So I need to kind of try and help myself a little I'm bit. like you. I need a little bit of the structure as well. Really great advice there. Now, our final few quick fire questions that we ask all of our guests, Ian, and thank you so much, by the way, for taking the time to share just a little bit of the fantastic content in your book. Now, we're all about being better at work. What's the smallest possible change you think our listeners could do to have an impact and a better day at work tomorrow? Every time they change task, breathe in for four and out for six. 
Ooh, we've not heard that one before. Okay, fantastic. Thank you, Ian. I'm going to try that. And do that. If, and if you do take 30 seconds to change your breathing, changes the chemistry of your brain. It's a reset button for the brain. I'm going to try that because we're moving house at the moment and there's a lot of admin tasks and I, I might need to breathe. Can you share with our listeners something you learned or experienced at work that unexpectedly made your whole life better? We've had all different types of answers to this. Some people said, I got feedback at work that I need to be X. And actually, that translated to my home life as well. Basically, something you learned or experienced at work that unexpectedly made your whole life better. I'll tell you what I, I learned from quite late in, in life is just the critical importance of values. If you can have a values-based organization or group of people, and if your values are an incredible uh, source of cement between people and of security in the face of change and uncertainty. You are speaking my language. I think as well, even in to know your own values, sometimes I've learned too late that my values weren't aligned or and that's maybe a source of unhappiness. Very, very good for your brain to affirm your values and it reduces the sense of threat from other people and the sense of the greatest fear that people have is the negative evaluation of other people as measured by cortisol secretion. Affirming your values protect you against that threat to some extent. Fantastic answer. And our final question, Ian, is we finish all with this question. Can you recall the best advice you ever received that you think has made you better at work? Learn to say no. I wish I could <laughs> learn that one myself. <laughs> Once you learn that, can you email me, please? Because I'm still learning that one myself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much, Ian. It has been fantastic to have you on the show. I've wanted you on for ages. And for more information on Ian, you can go to ianrobertson.org and check out his book. It is so good. How Confidence Works, The New Science of Self-Belief. Now, I had the audio, as I said earlier. I actually really like the audio, Ian. In a non-creepy way, you have a great voice to listen to. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Not creepy. Glad it's not creepy. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you, Ian, for coming yeah. on the show. And I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much, Carl. We'll talk soon. Nice speaking to you. Bye-bye. Welcome to Let's Take This Offline. Hello, Annette. How are you at all? It's so nice to see you. Hi, Kahal. I'm really good. Really looking forward to this. Let's take this offline, Kahal. Let's take this offline. You're very confident today, Annette, aren't you? Is that because you just listened to that episode? <laughs> I've been working on my breathing. <laughs> that was a great chat with Ian and I loved his book. I mean, the book was fantastic. You'd love the book too, How Confidence Works, The New Science of Self-Belief. What did you think of Ian Robertson? Kahal, I'm a big fan of Ian's and confidence has been a life's work for me in building and rebuilding confidence. Starting off with my three takeaways, I think for our listeners, it's about the case for confidence and why it's important. And it's easy to dismiss and I'm not a confident person or that's just not me. These five facts that summarize Ian's research about why confidence matters. Firstly, confidence makes your brain work better so that you perform better. Linked to that is the insight from Ian that confident people do more people who aren't confident do less, achieve less, experience less. The second fact about confidence, confidence is a mini antidepressant. Three, confidence is contagious. Four, confidence is anxiety's greatest antidote. And five, confidence is simply a set of habits that feel fake at first, but feel real with practice. Those five facts, really powerful case for why we need to pay attention to confidence and how we can work with it. So I think my next takeaway is really around summarizing those insights from Ian about the how-to. So to be confident, we need to manage anxiety and see it as a process. We often think that we are the way we are and we're born the way we're born and our nature is our nature. We don't sit around thinking, am I confident or am I not? We, we know it intrinsically. Am I a confident person? Do I, you know, do I suffer from a lack of confidence? We know it. So Ian's guidance around how to be confident is quite simple and easy to follow. And Ian has three simple steps there. One, breathing in for four and out for six. 
That's easy to do. So breathing is a big solution to confidence. The second one is paying attention to our thoughts. What are your thoughts when you're feeling anxious? Because that's when you're not feeling confident. What are you saying to yourself that subtracts from you? And really focus in on addressing those beliefs you have about yourself that keep popping up. So that's the second how-to. And then the third one is that take action. Take an action. Set a goal for the short term. It doesn't have to be the big goal. What can you do by the end of today? What can you do by the end of the week and break it down that way? So love the guidance from Ian's research about how to be confident by managing anxiety, getting in touch with our thoughts. The third takeaway for me, Kahal, is the can do, can happen matrix is a really powerful tool for assessing where you're at in a situation, where others around you and your team, your leader, your family and friends as a way to get an insight into what can you do to move into confidence and action in that situation and also understand the risks and dangers of being in a can't do, can't happen space. Those are my three takeaways, Kahal. Really great, Annette. Love your takeaways. Actually, you gave a really great summary of it all there because I think a lot of our listeners will want to know the how to. How do you actually do it? I had very similar takeaways to you. There was a few things I loved that he said. Imagination is the chief operating officer of confidence. I mean, that is so true, right? Because you do have to imagine something And then I think combine that with do the immediate next step. Like even when you think when we think about this podcast, right, I imagined it two or three years ago. I took a step and I was listening to another podcast and the lady mentioned Darcy, the producer, and said he had helped her amazingly on setting up a podcast. And I emailed Darcy. So that was an immediate next step. It wasn't the end goal. It wasn't that I Mm. thought I was going to have a podcast out the following week. But the imagination was important. Next step then, which was, in this case, sending an email to the person that she mentioned on her show. So I, I loved that because it made me think about how is it that I have used imagination as the chief operating officer of my own confidence. And so that one really appealed to me. It's so simple, easy to do, and insightful, backed by research and the science that Ian really understands. Yeah, exactly. And the other thing I thought in it is the research he's done is amazing, as you said. I do like that he's so practical, right? And, And similar to what you said, I was like, okay, if our listeners are listening, they will want to know how can I create confidence, right? How can I fake it <laughs> to just create, make myself more confident? And exactly similar to what you said, control what you pay attention to, setting the immediate goal. And I loved that, you know, he said, don't make it the end goal. And of course, I love Rumi as well. And Rumi said the road only appears with the first step, which I think for our listeners to think about that as well, setting the immediate goal, because the road only appears with the first step. If we come back to that podcast example, the road only appeared with the first step of me contacting Darcy and going, how do these things work? And then it led to the next step and the next step and the next step. I love the fact that Ian also said the words you speak to yourself after failure are important. That was a really big takeaway for me because I think in the past, if something went wrong for me, I would speak harshly to myself. And I think that's important not to do that. What did you think of that bit? I love that too, Kahal, that don't subtract from yourself. Be aware of your thoughts. What are you saying to yourself and address those beliefs? Absolutely. And the final thing I would say is you talked about the breathing there. He did also say posture is important and I need to get better at my posture as well, but it can help with increasing the confidence. I love the Amy Cuddy TED talk on body language and posture and the Wonder Woman pose that I like to do before a stressful (laughs) meeting. I'm going to the bathroom and doing the Wonder Woman pose and doing the breathing and the breathing. You know, when you feel that anxiety and 
feeling unsettled, you can do that breathing and no one knows you're doing it, that you've got this superpower to go to reset and get you out of that place of anxiety along with the body posture and how you're sitting. And if you've got that straight back, you're going to enable that diaphragmatic breathing. I've just done it now, Annette, so I can take confidence <laughs> for the final bit of our show. The one we can't do is the mammalian dive reflex by putting on your ice cold mast and doing that pretend dive that one doesn't work so well <laughs> I, I, <laughs> think, I think it was a great episode the conversation went broad with Ian as well of course we talked about the fact that social media has made life a lot harder for particularly young girls, teenage girls. I thought that was a very interesting discussion as well. So there was a lot in there and I think a lot even in our takeaways because confidence is such a huge topic. There is so much written on it and so many people want to be confident. I think what we hope you got from this episode for anyone listening is some tricks and tips that are science-backed for you to be more confident tomorrow than you are today and understanding that it is a journey and none of us become confident overnight. And I love those small little steps you can do. And I loved the phrase, imagination is the chief operating officer of confidence, because I think without imagination, we can't get there. And without one small step, you can't get anything done. So a great episode. I think Annette, we might need another episode on confidence because... I think there's just so much more to dig into on confidence. Such a big space, Kahal. And going back to those five facts about confidence, once you get across those, it really lifts the importance and the impact that understanding confidence in yourself and in those who are working with you and being able to help people with practical tips to improve their own confidence and help them move out of patterns of anxiety. Could not agree more in it. Look, a fantastic episode and a fantastic chat with Ian. If you haven't got the book before, guys, definitely get it. A really great read. I had the audiobook and I really enjoyed it. So it's called How Confidence Works, The New Science of Self-Belief. And thank you, Ian, for coming on the show. It's time for our question. And Annette, I've got the question this week and it comes from Shane. It's a very different type of question this week. And you and I chatted about it before the recording because we haven't had one like this before. But that's what we like. Different questions are great. So the question this week comes from Shane and Shane is a senior manager at a construction company. We're going to call a construction company that he works at Company A. Now, Company A has partnered with another construction company, we're calling it Company B, to bid for a major government roads project. Working together, Company A and Company B are due to give a presentation to the government. However, they're in a bit of a bind. Shane, who has contacted us, said that Shane and his colleagues at Company A believe the presentation material isn't up to scratch and needs a lot more development before it's ready to present. The team at Company B completely disagrees. They feel the material is perfect, ready to go, and they're refusing to make any changes. Jeez. Now, Shane's team have tried escalating the concerns to the most senior players at Company B, but no one is budging. They are due to present a presentation he believes is doomed to fail in a fortnight's time. Do you have any suggestions for me? And that is from Shane. So, Annette, there's a question and a half for you. This episode, we did say we wanted some curly ones, but that's a curly one, isn't it? This is a complex one, Kahal. This one has needed a lot of thought. I'll kick you off with my ideas. I think that it's only two weeks to go. One way to cut through here could be with asking for a dress rehearsal, a practice run, a dry run, to run through the what's going to be said and what's going to be shared from the document. Potentially, at that dress rehearsal, if there is capacity to get in an independent consultant with some experience in government who could potentially 
call out, these are the questions, almost role play, ask the questions that are likely to be asked by the government client. So I've done this in my work with one of the leaders I work with, Michael. We would always rehearse, rehearse, rehearse for big presentations and scenario out what might be the objections or the obstacles and and where the conversation might go. So real power in rehearsal. And Kahal, that links to a book uh, that I read by an astronaut. It's called An Astronaut's Guide to Life on Earth, Life Lessons from Space by Chris Hadfield, who was uh, one of the commanders of the International Space Station, which what astronauts do is practice. So when there's a fire on the space station, they practice. So they gather, warn, and work it till they run out of oxygen. So the power of rehearsal, and that might work with the teams here to say, well, this is what the astronauts do. We need to rehearse together. How are we going to work together as a cohesive team? Who's going to take the lead on certain parts? real power in rehearsing, ideally with an independent consultant. The second thing is following that rehearsal, capture the concerns and the likely risks and go into print. Write up where the weaknesses were, agree on that and what needs to be done to sharpen. And Some of that will drive some work around improving the documentation and the presentation of it. I think also Shane has some sample best practice winning documents and winning presentations that he can also share with with both teams that can also help with you know some unbiased comparison of what best and winning looks like so those those are my three ideas for Shane Gahal what do you think yeah. of those and what would you yeah, suggest I, I love the dress rehearsal one because I've been thinking about that as well and going could you use that as a way to position that you're not ready and because uh, then you'll have maybe someone independent there looking and going, right, okay, these presentations don't align. I think the thing that was hardest, the sentence in his question that probably made me concerned about how he moves forward on this is that they've tried escalating the issue to the most senior players at the other company and no one is budging. That does sound concerning, right? Mm, I don't like the sound of that. Yeah, I didn't like the sound of that, right? Because look, you and I have no experience in construction companies, but I have been doing a bit of digging when this question came in. And it seems like these government contracts, they sometimes do get multiple companies to work together. I think it must be some way to mitigate the risk or something. But apparently this is quite commonplace that two different companies have to go and work on the same project. And they do often have to come together and I suppose present together, etc. I was struggling with how does Shane get around this, particularly if no one is budging and the other company thinks that they're absolutely right. And that was where I was going, okay, this seems to be about relationships. Is this a bad omen for working with Company B? (laughs) If you can't even get the presentation or you can't make suggestions to them on that and no one's budging and no one's coming back, it doesn't sound like a great place to be with that partnership longer term. My only thing that I thought was, should Shane go up the chain on his side a little bit? And I hate using that phrase, go up the chain, but he's talked about that they've he's raised the concerns to the senior player at the other side, but has it been raised up at his side? Get some more support around him. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, I mean, does the CEO or the MD or whoever it is for his company know what's happening? Because maybe that would mean that the senior execs would go, oh, this is a bad sign if they're not playing ball. It could also be better that they know sooner rather than later. They may be able to talk to their counterpart at that level and say, look, you know, the team have come to me. This makes me concerned about our partnership in the future, that we can't agree this up front. Communicate and collaborate in the early days when it's about improving and lifting the standard of something. Exactly. Exactly. If I was the CEO or MD of the company Shane is working at, I would really appreciate Shane telling me this. And this being escalated to me, because we don't know, is this a forced partnership? 
from the question, I couldn't tell, I don't know if you could in it, but to me, it says company A has partnered with another company. That's all it said. Is it forced? Have the government said you have to both put your proposal together together because we need multiple players? Or has company A and company B felt we're actually a good match? We do this type of work and you do this type of work. So we don't have that detail. And and Shane, please do send us that detail if you think it would help. But I think what you're hearing from Annette and I is from Annette, you're hearing dress rehearsal. I really like that. Maybe someone independent coming in. I'm coming from the angle of I think it doesn't look like you've escalated it up the chain on your side. And I think what you want to do is summarize the concerns you have with Companies B's presentation. I'm talking two or three bullet points. And I also think highlighting that you have struggled with escalating your concerns or suggestions because I think that they are two important points. The differences or what's wrong with their presentation and two, the fact that no one's listening. I think I would want to know that, right, Annette? Yes, that call out around we're not collaborating positively. If that's left to run, that's going to damage things further down the track. If they're successful in getting the job, when there's a really serious issue to address within the construction, within the build. Shane, we hope that helps you out with that question. It's a tough one. And hopefully some of the suggestions Annette and I um, can help you as you navigate that very challenging situation. And of course, if anyone else has any other questions, do let us know. You can contact us on LinkedIn or you can send us an email through the Better at Work website. Just search through Google. You'll find us there. And of course, Annette, we wanted to remind people of how they can subscribe, follow the show. And I know this episode, you wanted to give a little highlight on how it's done on Apple. Yes. So on Apple, when you're listening to Better at Work, when you're in there, if you go to the top right of your screen, there'll be three dots when you're in the podcast. Click on those three dots and at the top there will come up, follow show. So if you haven't followed already, click follow show. In our next episode, we'll, we'll go into what to do if you're listening on Spotify. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Annette. Yes, definitely follow. And of course, don't forget as well, you can sign up for our newsletter on LinkedIn. You just go to my page on there, Cahal Quinlan, and you will be able to go on there and you'll see that all of the newsletters we've done are on there. You can also find them on Annette's um, LinkedIn as well. And we have got now over a thousand subscribers, Annette, between LinkedIn and our MailChimp one, which is so exciting. People seem to be responding quite well to the newsletter. Lots of great content from this episode that will go into the next newsletter as well, Cahal. That's it for from this episode of the show, Annette, thank you so much for joining me as always. Lovely to be here, Kahal. Thanks for having me and thanks everyone for listening in. Thanks so much. Talk soon. Have a great week, everyone. Bye-bye, Kahal. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye, Annette. Thank you for listening to Better at Work with me, Kahal Quinlan. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends and rate, review or subscribe as this helps others find the podcast. For more practical tips, simple tools, and ideas on how to aim for betterness, head on over to betteratwork.com.au and sign up for our newsletter. Until next time, watch out for those work jerks and keep reaching for better.